Welcome to Everyday Martial Artist, a weekly podcast where you'll join me, Brian Doucet, as I interview a different martial artist each episode and hear their story. Some guests you may have heard of, and some you probably haven't. Be sure to subscribe where all your favorite podcasts are available. Also, visit our website at everydaymartialartist.com. If you're listening for a specific interview, I sure hope you'll stay and check out the other episodes. A very special thank you to Topher Williams for our custom theme music. And now, the newest episode of Everyday Martial Artist. Everyday Martial Artist is brought to you by KOonline.com for all your martial arts needs. Sparring and safety gear, rank belts, uniforms, weapons, patches, and more. Wholesale supplies made by martial artists for martial artists. Visit us today at KO-Online.com. Hello and welcome to Everyday Martial Artist. I'm your host, Brian Doucette, and as we do every week, we're joined by a brand new guest talking about their life and their journey throughout the world of martial arts. My guest today is an author, podcaster, self-defense instructor, and so much more. He's been committed to empowering women for more than 20 years through developing and coaching effective self-defense strategies for the non-martial arts female. He guides the women's self-defense community, providing instructors and students with techniques to successfully resist attacks by predatory men. Currently provides executive security as a special projects manager and lead instructor for a major Western security provider. A major part of his background was built as a defensive tactics instructor, specializing in unarmed defense and subject control measures. He has instructed personnel at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia, as well as other members of law enforcement and security agencies throughout the U.S. Now his primary focus is on the civilian side of self-defense through the women's self-defense community and also the Tactical Studies Group. He's a certified tactical firearms instructor, a combat pistol instructor, and an Arizona State firearms instructor. Please welcome my guest today, Mr. Brad Parker. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great, Brian. Thanks you so much for having me on. Oh, thank you. Thank you for agreeing to it. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to learning more about you. Kind of how we kick things off with all my guests, I want to go back to the very beginning. I want to know where that first spark came from. What led to that first interest in martial arts and kind of kicked off your martial arts journey? Well, it's interesting because you and I have kind of a similar background from that standpoint because I started in Japanese Shotokan when I was 16. And the only reason I didn't start earlier is because I couldn't drive myself down to the school. So I was always athletic and started to excel in like contact sports, but I didn't wrestle, which is going to be interesting uh, later on in the show when you talk about getting into grappling. Mm -hmm. So I, like you, I grew up as a striker and then uh, went to school in LA and continued studying Shotokan there, but just kind of picked up instructors here and there and back and forth. And then in Mesa, Arizona, ended up walking into a Okinawan school that me as a consumer, I said, you know, this is going to give me a really well-rounded martial arts experience. The The instructor, Milt Callender, he, he did weapons, uh, traditional Okinawan weapons. He had judo. Uh, he had uh, just a very hard style, traditional Okinawan uh, style, which really kind of appealed to me. And so that's how I really probably got into more of my formal training, even though I had been in uh, traditional courses, Mm -hmm. I really wasn't chasing a belt. Okay. Um, And it really was just kind of another athletic outlet for me. So that's how I started, which is probably similar to you. So that original Shotokan school, how long were you at that original one? And what belt did you get to? And you said you weren't chasing belts, but I'm assuming you at least progressed a little bit. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I can't even remember the ranking, but it was very much the beginner. Probably, I was there a couple of years okay. before I graduated uh, high school and then went on to move to L.A. to go to school. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, gee, I don't 
don't remember what the the rankings were, but yeah, it was way underneath a, a brown belt. I was okay. still just a intermediate type of uh, training, and uh, I I tried to I gravitated to the sparring. And I didn't do kata so much until later on in life when I kind of realized what the secrets of kata was. And so it was a very hard, hard style, yes. uh, as you can you can talk about back in the old days where it was tough. If your back leg wasn't straight, you get that bamboo sword, <laughs> that shinai, and you get it wrapped across your back leg. Oh, and, yeah. And, you know, half the time you couldn't understand my Japanese instructor because of his thick accent. He, uh, But it was very uh, fulfilling. You meet some great people. And so then I moved to the West Coast, went through that. And uh, because you kind of are in and out of schools, you don't really have this continuity with an instructor. Right. You're kind of like the new kid on the block every school you go to. So it's almost like you're starting over. So that was, that was the beginnings of it. Okay. But really they kind of paled in terms of my commitment to the art until I really got into the Okinawan style. Now, before you got into Okinawan, did you get into the competition side of martial arts at all? You said you got into the sparring. Did you ever do tournaments? Yeah. And that was a very interesting thing. And you'll, um, in the school I was at, it was, it was kind of a stylized form of, of Kumite mm -hmm. where it was a, a big premium on speed and quickness. And of course, form, you couldn't get a point if you didn't have good form. And so what was interesting is I go, great, I'm finally getting into some like realistic fighting. And now I, I realize it was kind of stylistic fighting. And one of the things that really kind of really uncovered some interesting concepts to me was a couple of times, and you've seen it too back in the old days when, you know, the head was a target, but you couldn't quote rock the head. Yep. You could touch the head and the face, but you can't rock it. Well, just like baseball pitchers, as you see, when they start brushing back batters mm. and then the next turn they get up and the other pitcher retaliates. So someone gets a hard punch and they don't get a foul. So they punch back harder. And then I've saw at least three full on fights oh, wow. uh, that, that came out of that kind of uh, retaliation. And the thing that was just absolutely fascinating to me was once the tempers flared and the fights really, even though they still had protective gear, once it really, really went for real, there was no Shotokan involved at all. <laughs> <laughs> it was a brawl. A brawl yeah. And I thought that was very interesting. And so I, I started kind of losing some faith in that particular art. And it may have just been that particular instructor and style. Mm -hmm. Then I kind of bounced around to some kind of uh, kickboxing back when kickboxing was kind of going along. And so there was no ranking. I didn't compete in that sport earlier, but it seemed to have a lot of, a lot more, a lot more appeal to me. Okay. And, uh, I played, uh, football and basketball in high school, I played rugby in college, but I had pretty fast hands, good baseball player, good basketball player. So I had, I relied a lot on my, my hands, low kicks, not like you guys in Taekwondo that had a premium <laughs> on head kicks. And so I was kind of a hands-oriented fighter to start with. Okay. And as we progressed, I finally committed to this Okinawan style. And that's when I think I really was committed. 
Which Okinawan Island system was it? Well, it's uh, it was a style that was brought back from the Solomon Islands by Robert Trias, and it was called Shuri Ru. So it was a style from the that was kind of indicative of the region around Shuri, the Okinawan city, uh, versus Naha, which is interesting because as you go through the history, the two styles are, oh boy, they're rivalries. And, you know, back in the old days, one style is better than the other. And then I look at how similar they are when I run into other Okinawan stylists, Gojo Ru, Ishin Ru, and they're like very, very similar. Mm -hmm. The concepts and the principles are really really similar. And I've realized that it's not so much the art as it is the principles and then the practitioner. So we, I think we started seeing that in uh, later on with the rise of MMA, mm -hmm. where uh, there was a big stylistic difference at the start. Uh, and I was kind of proud to be part of that early on. And I, I experienced that stylistic difference uh, in the early 90s. My training partner at the time, Greg Holmes, who ended up being my partner uh, in a commercial martial arts school, he was at a world tournament in the early 90s uh, in uh, Albuquerque. And he comes back and he says, man, I met these brothers. They're from Brazil and they were amazing. I go, what do you mean, Brazil? You know, yeah, these guys, the Gracie brothers, and they were at this karate tournament and they offered to wrestle everybody at the tournament. And I go, what do you mean wrestle everybody, line everybody up in a big gym? And they wrestled everybody. I go wrestling, uh, you know, like college wrestling. He goes, he goes, no, it's like nothing I've ever seen. And they were tossing guys around that were collegiate wrestlers. And we had a, we had a instructor who was the ex-collegiate wrestler and he was so confounded. Now there was no hitting involved, uh -huh. but it was all, as we learned later, Gracie jujitsu. Yep. So we, we kind of tried to look these guys up and they were, this was when Hickson was still with Horian. And so uh, I went over there to start looking at a law enforcement. They had a law enforcement program called Grapple and LAPD was part of it. And it was a big draw. So I went over there to get involved with that. And I was sold. <laughs> it was like, it was so different. It was like sparring with ninjas. You're like, this is magic. How are they doing this? And it was a very interesting um, aspect for us. And so that really what put me on the on the road to having a lot of the uh, unarmed defense and subject control measures. Mm -hmm. I'd learned early on that this was amazing for controlling people. And it was unlike anything I've ever done before because I'm not trying to get my gap so I can use my kicks or my hands, I'm actually closing the gap. I'm all the way in or all the way out and I'm closing and I start finding out it's hard to keep somebody from closing the distance if they're committed. So all the things that you and I learned way back coming up the thing, well, you just kick them in the head, <laughs> yeah, or just front kick them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Or punch. And then we're getting swarmed by these guys and we can go into that a little bit more, but it was so amazing to us. So we ended up becoming the first, the school Greg and I had, we ended up becoming the first Gracie Association school in Arizona. And it was absolutely amazing. That put us on a really interesting path where now we're combining our striking skills also with uh, the grappling skills that the Gracies were teaching us. And then 
UFC one comes out and then, oh my God, the whole world ends up learning it. Yep. So it was phenomenal, phenomenal chapter in American martial arts development. So I want to back up just a little bit now, cause you mentioned opening a school. So what kind of led to, so when did teaching become something now? Is that something I'm assuming Shotokan, you didn't get into the teaching aspect of it. You weren't a high enough belt maybe, but did that start in the Okinawan style when you started teaching? It did. Okay. And I'll tell you what, what was interesting is I had the perfect combination of instructors. My first instructor, Mel Callender, was very cerebral, very technical. He was uh, a smaller guy and he had superb timing. He had superb technique. And um, he was generally kind of aligned with another uh, Okinawan school, same same style, in town with a guy named Mike Wall, who was kind of the opposite. He was tough, fast, really good fighter. So back in the day, we had, uh, yeah, it was, it was hardcore sparring, uh, almost like uh, Hyoku Shinkai uh, that I've seen people do. Uh, when I'm like, yep, yeah, that's kind of the old days that we had. So it was very interesting. So I had this combination of influences that was technical, athletic, uh, cerebral versus physical. And so it was a great combination for us. So guy in the same school I was in, Greg Holmes, he progressed. He's an absolute amazing uh, martial artist. He's an amazing athlete. So he has now progressed to being a, a world champion at the USKA uh, level. And he uh, also is a noted yoga instructor and he's a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Uh, it, just an amazing guy. Well, we had gotten to that point, you know, you're, you're, I don't know, black belts and you're, mm -hmm. you're kind of going along. And one of the uh, milk calendars closed his school oh. like, oh, wow. Okay. So Greg was saying, what am I going to do? I ended up going to Mike Wall's school. Greg kept training and then we would work out together and finally said, why don't we just do a school? Why don't we put together the curriculum that we like and we take all the traditional side to it and we can do the things we want to do? Well, okay. So it's kind of interesting, like you can tell the son, you can tell the father by watching the son, you know, work. Yep. And that's what we had. We thought, oh, we're going to be so different, but we really were the sons of our instructors. Mm -hmm. And so I think that goes with the thing that I'd like to get across looking back on our careers, you and I, is that instructors don't understand what kind of impact they have on their students. Mm -hmm. It is a deep connection and it lasts forever. I know you, you've you been telling me about uh, your previous instructors and you have that connection forever. Yeah. So it's very interesting. And as much as we wanted to be, quote, you know, progressive and everything, oh, we were, we were true to form. We were absolutely true to form. And then we we started saying, hey, this these Gracie brothers are very interesting. Let's let's train to become instructors under them and start offering that. And that was a very interesting aspect. So we had a school that was traditional Okinawan and then also the Gracie Jiu Jitsu and it brought in two two entirely different uh, yeah. student groups. How long was the school open before you added the BJJ? Oh, boy. So we had it, it not very long because okay. I'll tell you why, before we even opened the school, we started studying with the Gracies. Oh, okay. So it was kind of a coincidental kind of thing. So it was probably only 
months when we started in the early 90s wow. uh, that we added this brand new thing called Gracie Jiu Jitsu, mm -hmm. put the big logo in the, in the window. Nobody knew what it was. They didn't, <laughs> nobody had heard of it. Then uh, UFC one happened. Suddenly everybody'd heard of it. And we get a guy walking in. He goes, Hey, I saw the logo in the window. My name is Nathan Ziegler and I study with Helson Gracie in Philadelphia. Well, Nathan Ziegler at the time was a blue belt. And Greg and I were white belts in jujitsu. We were black belts in karate, but white belts in jujitsu. And this guy was like a ninja. He was amazing. So at that time in the universe, when a new art is so new that nobody else really does it, that's the second belt you get. It goes white to blue. Yep. He's a blue belt. He is absolutely cleaning up on these open tournaments. And he has zero striking. Uh, in fact, we tried to teach him some and I ended up injuring his finger. I feel terrible about it. One of those, his hands are out straight and I go to jab and it, it jams his little finger straight back into his hand. And he's, he's still got a deformed little finger from that. He never lets me let it down. Wow. But it was very interesting as all of these aspects in the martial arts universe are kind of all coming together. And it was fascinating. Brian, I'm telling you, it was fascinating as students, as instructors are saying, there's a major land shaking going on here underneath everything that we thought we knew about. It was very interesting. Wow. And how long did you guys run that school? Oh, wow. We probably ran that school for about five years. Okay. And then uh, we had, uh, uh, Greg wanted to move on to a different school. And so we closed that school. And then Nathan and I opened the uh, a Gracie school and we just continued down the road. So I went from being underneath uh, Horian and Hoyce to under their older brother, Helson. Mm -hmm. And Nathan has taken that school and it's it's a huge success now. The Gracie, Arizona, uh, here in Phoenix, it's gigantic. It is one of the best jujitsu schools because it's competitive, but it's technical. So you can go in and you're not going to get beat up. And back in the, you know, the 90s, we'd have guys show up to do challenge matches, wow. challenge matches. And, uh, you know, we almost laughed like they have this in Brazil all the time. And we're laughing like I thought this was the dojo storming was something from like an old Bruce Lee movie. Or you hear these stories in the 60s when people would storm somebody else's dojo that offended them and beat everybody up and everything. And we had these lions that would come in. And it was amazing. We could take guys that had not trained very much. Now they can't win, but they wouldn't lose. So we had a couple guys in particular that are dirt poor and they would go from, they study with us. One guy in particular studied with us for about six months, small guy, a rock and roller, cut his hair, he had long hair when he came in. First night he came in and he ended up going to the back and throwing up, but he, he stuck with it and he'd only been at the school for six months couldn't pay for it anymore, started going around town like, hey, you know, one free lesson or one week free lessons. And he'd go into karate schools and end up like, okay, well, like a little bit of a challenge match, friendly challenge match with the black belt at school. And what was happening was, as I said, he can't beat the guy, mm -hmm. but he could negate the guy. Yeah. So he could stuff their basically what they were doing with a very small amount of 
uh, technique and principles that the Gracies were teaching us, but had been in their families forever. So to them, uh, it was very natural. But to us, it just seemed like this is magical. And of course, the UFCs are going out at the time. It's getting more and more popular. And that's when uh, I started being invited to do defensive tactics for police departments. Okay. And specifically over in uh, Great Britain and Ireland, where they have really, really strong limits on force that police can use against citizens. So it was very interesting to help them with their uh, programs. Interesting. And so you, you actually started overseas then before you did in the U.S. or did both kind of the same time for doing both that? Both at the same time okay. because we had uh, we had guys coming in. Well, okay, it's it's kind of a strange constellation of stars that all kind of align. So over in Torrance, we would go over every couple of weeks, once a month or whatever we were doing going over. Greg was training to be an instructor. I was going over to train to be part of their law enforcement instructors. And we had guys from LAPD. Uh, We had guys from uh, Delta Force. They were kind of doing a train the trainers uh, course. Mm -hmm. So they Delta Force would have their guys come in and become instructors and then take it back to uh, Fayetteville. And that's where uh, I'd been working out with uh, the head of defensive tactics for the FBI. And in Phoenix, we had agents that were also coming into the school. So we're training our special agents here in Phoenix. And then I'm also training with the national guys. And that's how I got invited to uh, guest in, uh, lecture and demonstrate in Quantico, which was very interesting. And mm-hmm. that all led to more exposure, which uh, ended up making friends over in the uh, in the UK and uh, then teaching the uh, the Irish National Police and also the London Metro Police, which was just a blast. And um, I kind of feel like if any of your listeners can do something like that Mm -hmm. and use the martial arts as a bridge to become ambassadors, it's absolutely a very positive experience. And you can really help a lot of people out and, of course, make great lifetime friends. So what's the coolest country then you got to train in? Mm, They're all cool. (laughs) Yeah, do you have a favorite one that stands out? Well, so the, um, I tell you, some of the things that do stand out is uh, in Ireland, teaching the Garda Shiokana, the Irish National Police, they have very, very strict limits on use of force mm-hmm. and putting pressure on anybody, specifically their head, neck, or chest. And uh, there was a New York cop that was there kind of providing some stuff too. And he just horrified everybody. when he said, okay, well, they won't let go. So I kind of tune them up a little bit. And, you know, he's kind of demonstrated like he's striking them. And I'm looking at this panel of police administrators and they're horrified, (laughs) absolutely like horrified, like, oh my God, this American from New York is advocating striking these people. And he's being so cavalier about it. I kind of had to step in and kind of steer it back to, the principles of being able to control people without hitting them. Okay. So how can you control someone without trying to beat them into submission? Now, the other part of that coin is how can I control them so they can't hit me, but I could hit them if I needed to. So it's a lot of positioning and uh, it's very, very apropos 
for law enforcement. And one of the things that's so interesting is Henner Gracie is doing a really good job of distributing his law enforcement program around the country and around the world too. But he's doing the same thing that I discovered a long time ago, which is it's really something that they can use and they can use immediately. So it's that kind of training is safer for the officer Mm -hmm. and it's safer for the subject. Now, when you think about subject, we're citizens, right? Mm -hmm. And the better trained law enforcement is, the safer we are because they don't have to beat someone into submission because A, they're scared or B, they don't know what else to do. So it's been a very, very fulfilling uh, role to be doing that. And I really got to have my hats off for Henner. And it's kind of funny in the summers uh, when we would do a lot of uh, kind of a big national training where a lot of the uh, federal cops would come in, which kind of give you a kind of a parenthetical thing like that's always an interesting mix when you get federal cops and municipal cops together. (laughs) There's a little bit of a rivalry going on there. And so now that they can get out on the mat, it's kind of interesting. But he's done such a great job of pulling all those things together. And I remember Henner when he was 9, 10, 11 (laughs) years old, and he was the greatest kid and he helped out. Now I look at him as a man and you say, this is unbelievable. I look back and I can see where a lot of, he gets a lot of his stuff from. And he's fascinating. He's doing, I'm hoping he continues to do as well as he is because it's going to make our police and law enforcement agencies so much better for citizens. That's awesome. Let me give you one thing. Okay. I'll give you one thing that I absolutely stands out. So I'm working with London Metro and I've done them a couple times. Now, London Metro is interesting because London proper is only one square mile. Wow. I, I know. But <laughs> of course, the Metro part is, is substantially larger. So we're working with uh, some guys in the group and women in the group. So all of this is going really well. And it's so now they're saying, well, you know, look, come out on patrol with us fabulous. I can't wait to do this. <laughs> and so what's interesting about it is we're one night we're out and we get a call and we're in, they call them carriages, kind of like those sprinter vans that you get at the, uh, you know, you see it's like transport things for airports and things. There may be a, a 12 passenger van. Uh, they're high up. Now these things have got the chain link fence that they can put down over the, over the windscreen. And it's bright marked and they've got a team, like a response team of, I want to say maybe eight people in there, mm-hmm. men and women, and they have riot gear if they need it and they can respond to emergencies. They're not just your regular bobbies on the street. So we're responding to these things and I'm sitting, <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, I think I'm standing up and I'm holding on to the straps in the back and I'm just looking around and I'm smiling like, here I am in London, going code three across the Westminster Bridge, right past Big Ben. And it's got that wee-wah, 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 <laughs> you know, siren. And I just said, you can't make a movie out of this. It That's was so cool. interesting to have those kind of experiences. That's cool. I've, I've never traveled overseas. So <laughs> that's why I love stories like that. So hopefully someday. So when did the women's self-defense become something that interested you? Because obviously that's a massive part of your life right now. So when did that start? Oh, my God. Brian, oh, my God. (laughs) When did it become? It was interesting because this is the interesting chapter in my life that 
created a situation where I had a woman, a safety expert, national safety expert, called me the stupidest man in America. <laughs> and it's because of this horrible transition that I had to make. And he, let me lay it out for you so okay. you can see what an idiot I was. <laughs> so we're black belts. Greg and I are black belts. And we've got uh, you know, girlfriends and moms at this commercial school. We got great kids class going on. We got all sorts of things happening. And they said, hey, can you teach us self-defense? Well, of course, you know, I kind of puff up and kind of hitch up my key pants. <laughs> sure, little lady, we're black belts, you know. Sure, we can do this for you. So we put together, Greg and I put together a uh, a course for them. And we did, you know, okay, well, if he grabs your wrist, you do this. If he grabs your shoulder, you do this. If he does this, you do that. And we went down the road. And and so, great. This is a, we want don't want to give them everything, mm -hmm. but let's give them a good, you know, basic thing, and a basic curriculum. So had people come in, we had the women come in, and we are teaching techniques that you and I, you and I could trade and we say, oh yeah, yeah. Go against the thumb, right? Mm -hmm. Against the thumb. Yeah. Yeah. This is how we'll do this. If he grabs you high, you do this. If he grabs you low, you do this. And we went through this thing. We went to teach these techniques and the women weren't getting them. And then I'm looking up at the clock and I go, okay, we got to move on because we're not going to get through all of our techniques in the two hours that we have if we don't keep going. Then we get through all these techniques. And then at the end, okay, let's review these. It's been two hours the students could not remember the first techniques that we, they couldn't remember them. Mm -hmm. So like, oh, that's horrible. That was, you know, that's ridiculous. Okay, so we'll do, do another class. And this time I'll just talk louder. <laughs> yeah, see, I'm glad you get the joke. <laughs> so we did the same exact thing and got the same exact result. And I can spare you all the, the details because it was very frustrating. And then I realized the third time we did it, it's not them, it's us. What are we doing wrong trying to teach? Well, we're not trying, we're teaching them karate, but we're not trying to teach them like a, a six month thing. We're just giving them, you know, what they need. Okay, I need some help on this. So I started doing some research and some of the cops that we we're training with, they give me some contacts to talk about in Vice and the guys that investigate rapes. And so I, great, let me, I, I probably need to find out how this really happens. Brian, I am telling you, it is the most troublesome, horrible thing to learn what really happens in sexual assaults. Mm -hmm. We think we know what happens in them, and we don't have that. We literally, we don't know what really happens. It's horrible. I had some cases that were given to me that, uh, and then women started sharing. Anyway, long point, we we're doing it all wrong because- we were thinking sexual assaults were basically a fight, and it's not. And there's so many things, 75%, 74% of most sexual assaults are, quote, uh, acquaintance assaults. It's not really – now, I think it's getting worse now, but at the time, it was not really – it was fairly rare that somebody would jump out of the bushes when you're jogging in the park. It's not a stranger thing. There's some kind of connection. And they're horrible. They're absolutely horrible in terms of it's all about power and it's all about humiliating people, controlling them. And the things that are done are just vile and despicable. And it really rocked me. I said, I got to take a step back. We got to change everything. But I don't know how to do this. So what I was running into was I'd have some classes 
And then uh, we had like a, a woman's kickboxing class. And I said, hey, you know what? Show me show me what you do on this. And I, I learned, here's how a lot of attacks happen. What would you do if someone did this? Well, I don't know. You know, how about this or this? Or how about this? Okay, how about this? Hey, you know, I'm kind of feeling that. What if you kind of pushed harder here? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. So what happened was kind of going back to the drawing board, <laughs> it's not these courses started falling together under these six basic principles. Mm -hmm. And we found out that the things that special forces operators use, the things that cops use, things that big guys use, they don't work. This is a smaller fighter. They have very little experience. So think of what you would do as a smaller fighter against a larger, stronger uh, fighter. So there's that aspect. But there's also the psychological aspect of being ambushed or actually being coerced into a situation where he uses the fear of pain or the fear of harming your child. And you get put into these Faustian type of bargains where you're trying to bargain with a guy so he won't hurt you. It was a huge paradigm shift for me. Like this is so very different. And that's what started me down the road of hey, we've got to do something. And eventually, as, as I mentioned, we come up with six basic principles that we observe because we're principle-based, concept-based, and we don't fight a man like a man does. Right. So Brian, you and I get up, we put our gloves on, or, or maybe we're in the bar and you and I, uh, you know, I think you're looking at my girlfriend. <laughs> and so I'm like, hey, and I start eyeing you, you start eyeing me, we stand up, we kind of push each other a little bit, you start poking the finger in the chest, and then somebody goes for a haymaker, right? Yep. And then there's a million haymakers, someone goes to the ground and his buddies jump in, everyone starts stomping you. Well, I can't teach a 105-pound woman who has no combat sports experience to do that. She can't, well, you, you poke him in the eyes, you kick him in the groin, you punch him and run away. Okay, uh, so how would I do this? And I had a lot of instructors say, well, oh no, I, I wouldn't teach him to fight. I would just teach him to escape. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> how do we do that? I would love that. I would love to be able to just escape. He's holding you down. He's ripping your clothes off. He may be stuffing clothing into your mouth. He's punching you in the face Oh, and just escape. So I tell you, without getting into the details, it created a long road that we started going down and we started experimenting and we found out what women could do using their strongest weapons against men's weakest targets. And we uh, started finding out a couple things. We put armor on our, uh, our quote, bad guys. Mm -hmm. uh, and we only do it in a certain way. We do the center line. You have a helmet, you have a chest protector, you have a groin protector, no shin guards, no elbow pads, no because what we wanted the women to do, we wanted them to project power up and down the center line. And I don't know, tell me how Taekwondo does that. But in a lot of martial arts, like, yeah, I can see the center line. I'm protecting the center, my center line because all my targets kind of go up and down, groin, abdomen, solar plexus, throat, chin, eyes, you know, they're all kind of on that level. So we started going down that road and we started finding out that the women were not using the techniques hard enough because they were afraid they were going to hurt our guys. Okay, so we start putting armor on them. And we go, see, you can't hurt us. Big red man suits yep. or fist suits. You can't hurt us. See, you know, so 
they go, oh, okay. Yeah, no, kick, kick harder. Okay. You know, knee harder, harder, harder. Like, see, that doesn't, that doesn't hurt me. They're like, oh, okay. Mm. <laughs> so <laughs> as we teach it, we teach the other instructors to say like, hey, at first the armor is not for you. It's for them. A, it's classical conditioning. I only put armor on the areas I want you to strike. Mm-hmm. So as you're teaching, you may get some errant kicks or strikes to your thigh, your, you know, your bicep or whatever, but I want them to concentrate on the center line. And I don't want them to feel like, oh, I can kick hard now. So this, cause it doesn't hurt the guy. <laughs> and then the hidden spot is as they get really good. Oh yeah. Now the armor is for you. <laughs> so as they start being able to project power from their strongest weapons, now you really do need the armor. I'm going to give you and I a little bit of a compliment. So for guys like us that came up striking, mm-hmm. we know how to take hits. Yes. Does that make sense? Yep. And I will get guys that want to help mm-hmm. and they don't know how to actually take blows mm-hmm. and they don't like it. So I get bad guys that quit, you know, like, uh, yeah, not for me. <laughs> so <laughs> I will, I will hand it to the, the strikers in the group here. You have a lot more uh, background than we think we do, because when you really start mixing it up, you realize, you know, I actually know how to take, deflect, and avoid a lot of power coming from other people. We learned that coming up through the ranks. And you Taekwondo guys, I had a a shin cracked from trying to block a sidekick from Mm. some Taekwondo guy. Nice. That, yeah, yeah, nice. You're like, (laughs) yeah, let me tell you some of the injuries. Exactly. Oh, yeah, I've been there. (laughs) Yeah, you've been there. So it's all really good stuff. But I think what I'm trying to get into is to break a paradigm of what we kind of always thought we would do or what instructors tell me. I interviewed a lot of instructors and most of the instructors said, oh, I, I don't teach them to fight. I just teach them to escape, which is lame. Mm-hmm. It's totally lame. You're not giving that. Why? Because your women aren't worth it to defend themselves or they can't learn the techniques. Why do you not teach them how to fight? It's a fight. Or the flip side is they go on the other side. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Head butts, elbows, knees. And I'm thinking to myself, head butts? <laughs> Holy crap. So you get both sides of the things. We've had to come out with a way that your average unarmed female within a minimal amount of time can actually start defending herself against full power attacks from males, which totally different than pairing two women up in the class. And they'll tell you, it's terrifying to have the weight of a male and the strength of a male as attacking you. So they get used to it. And so that's an interesting thing. We're actually kind of doing, what do you call it? Aversion therapy. Mm Mm-hmm. So they're getting used to this, having force being projected on them, but we do it. Look, you and I do not jump into the jacuzzi all at once or the ice bath. You get a toe in, then a foot in, then you kind of get up to your knees, then yeah, you sit down, you know, and then you get used to it. That's what we do with them. It's a carefully controlled process and they don't necessarily recognize it because they've never been put in this process before. Right. You started doing this, doing all the research, perfecting all your stuff. Did did that lead to then PFC training and getting connected with the women's self-defense community? Almost. Okay. So PFC is absolutely one of the most phenomenal organizations I've been involved with for 20 years. And so at the time, 20 years ago, 
the two or three main guys that were starting this fledgling training company up in Nevada, they were exploring with an instructor named Hawk Hockheim this very strange concept of how do you put together your striking martial art, your edged weapon martial art, and your also your your gunfighting martial arts. How do you integrate all of those? And so I thought that was fascinating. So this is I just I had been going through the um, the Gracie revelations for about eight to ten years at that point, and so I was really hot to find out. Okay, now how do I integrate? my firearms in all this. Like, okay, I'm training as an unarmed combatant, but now if I'm in a protection role or a law enforcement role, how do I involve all of these other intermediate tools or my lethal force tools? So that's, we started, I started seeing these guys doing articles and kind of went back and forth. And we did that thing I look at it now and you've recognized this in your whole career. You'll put together people that are, they're doers. And there's this kind of natural, like dogs, like sniffing each other, that kind of thing. There's kind of a circling and and you're probably laughing because you're like, yeah, you know, you don't, we meet somebody and you respect them. And there's this kind of back and forth of like, well, We've run into weird people in this in this kind of profession anyway. So there's kind of back and forth of being trying to check everybody's credentials. And we have a thing in the protection agency. We have a, a thing we call it the three call rule, which is the executive protection industry's growing remarkably. And I've got a something we can talk about on that. But it's also very small in the sense that a lot of teams and a lot of individuals, they know each other, they've worked with each other, they've worked for each other in a lot of different capacities. So we say the three phone call rule, which is I can find out Brian's creds and what he's like to work with probably within about three phone calls. Mm-hmm. I'll call somebody, they think they know a guy who knows you, and then they find you know, call another guy that knows you. And then I can find out, oh yeah, Brian, totally great guy, really skilled highly trusted. And you're like, okay, there you go. So you kind of go through that. That's why there's a lot of vetting going on. And we started working together and they are the most fascinating instructors I've ever, I'll probably say three, three of the top instructors you go through that change your life. So these guys are my brothers that I've never had and I've worked with them for 20 years. So the whole PFC thing had been going on uh, for a while in terms of training. And then as I was doing more executive protection work, we started talking and they're like, you know, we need to, uh, we need to start putting this curriculum together so we can start training executive protection agents because there's a lot of hit and miss mm-hmm. in the industry. People are kind of self-taught and they're either coming out of the military, law enforcement, places like doormen or they're guys that are just enthusiastic and they're coming out of the martial arts world, but there's not a curriculum. So we ended up writing a book for a curriculum that we started training with years ago. And we still offer that protective service operator certification course that is really popular. And it really gives people a real good education if they want to start in executive protection or if they're in executive protection and they need to roll up their professional creds even more. So to answer your your question, it was all kind of going on in the soup at the same time. Okay. 
So then what led to the, the podcast and kind of how you met Tracy? <laughs> Tracy. God, I love Tracy. She's uh, awesome. She is awesome. She has a huge gift. So back in the, you know, 10, maybe 12 years ago, I went down the strange thing. I start teaching this class for women's self-defense. And then I get a woman who says, uh, or a couple of women to say, hey, can you give us notes on the class? Okay. So I put together these notes. And then a little bit longer, I get this, hey, can you do a video for us? Like a video notebook? Okay, sure. Back in the days, you put them on a DVD. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you film them in class and you're doing these things. Then I started getting people who were getting a hold of the DVDs and they're like, oh, how can I become one of your instructors? Well, what do you mean, one of my instructors? How can you certify us to become an instructor and teach your stuff? And I consulted with other people and they said, this is priceless because if you as an individual say, if we can save one woman from being attacked, well, that's kind of chicken feed. How about if we save a million women from being attacked? And so from being one instructor to developing a network of people all over the US, Canada and overseas, it really compounds our ability to reach people and teach them something. This is a historic problem, sexual assault, historic problem. No matter how hard we work, we're never going to stop it. But can we put a dent in it? Can we save a million women? Can we save a million girls? And Tracy was part of that as an instructor. And she was going down the road of saying, well, I teach kids classes. I don't really teach the adult women, but I would go over and see her and we would train other people to instruct. We kind of train the trainers. Mm -hmm. So we would have people that were martial artists that were trying to add this curriculum to their, their curriculum. We had people from a church or a civic organization that said, yeah, I want to teach this to my people in my group. I've even had, uh, for example, at colleges to have their law enforcement side at a college or a university to say, we would like to hold these classes. Can you teach us how to teach the course? And even up to the point of, of having, I'm not going to say the name, but having a large military base, the family services group on base say, can you teach us this curriculum so we can teach the family members who are oftentimes on base for nine months to 12 months without their spouse. Mm -hmm. So the spouse is overseas on deployment and the family members are essentially by themselves. And so there's a, it's a historic problem. It's a hidden problem. The statistics do not do it justice in terms of how much sexual assault is really going on. And as you've been reading the news, you can tell how much is going on with children. So Tracy has a huge gift for teaching kids. She is one of the best instructors I've ever seen work for really young kids up to teenagers. And she's awesome. And she's just a fun person. She's a great practitioner. I don't know if you ever had a chance to spar with her. Nope. She she'll <laughs> kick your butt. I've never met her in person yet. So and and, no. and she'll laugh while she's doing it. So she's <laughs> she's awesome.
So she got started and she said, this is great. And she's adapted the program to kids. So that's how uh, Tracy and I have been uh, together. And I call her one of our super coaches. So um, she's a super coach and she just got a gift for work with kids. So Tracy says, we need to do a podcast. And I'm like, no, we don't need to do a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we need to do a podcast. And again, it's Brad, how do you get the word out to more girls and women, especially as we go through this time frame? of social and cultural fracturing that's really causing crime rates to rise all over. And when did you start the pod? How long has it been going now? So we've been doing it for probably two years. Okay. And we've kind of gone up and down in terms of how best to do a podcast. So when we started, we'd have maybe five instructors on thinking we're going to have a round robin uh, kind of a round robin discussion on things. And I think we found that that's just too much and it gets very few views. So with having our, some of our super coaches on talking about a specific subject, it works much better. And then also, quite frankly, when, and I don't know if you do this, but for us, we do it on like a video call and we cut up the clips. And so you may have a 15 or 25 second clip of a very good comment from one of the instructors. And uh, I try to, as it's turned out, the super coaches, the exception of Mike Wall, they're all women. And women have a huge advantage of teaching women's self-defense to other women. I mean, think about it. Mm-hmm. There's so much of the emotional aspect that us as guys, we just can't do. I've had to partition off some things when getting really, oh, I've made a lot of mistakes, Brian. (laughs) I made a lot of mistakes. So just going back to how many women have either been attacked or they know somebody personally who's been attacked, you run into times when you're teaching where, um, and finally it only took me like three times getting hit over the head to figure this out. Remember, stupidest man in America? (laughs) So- For example, had a a student, she was actually a karate student, but she was in one of the women's self-defense classes. And I pull out a rubber knife and I go, okay, what do you do now when the guy has forced you to your knees, he's holding your hair and he's holding a knife against your throat? I got this rubber knife against Mary's throat and we're, I'm talking and pontificating and being, you know, one of those kind of instructors. Well, going on and on. And I feel this kind of disturbance. I look down and this student, Mary is, she is having a breakdown. Brian, guess how she was attacked? With a knife. Yeah. So, and that puts you in a weird position because I'm not your therapist. I'm your self-defense coach. Mm-hmm. However, the phenomenal, uh, some, some of the phenomenal women in the, in, in the network, they kind of are your therapists. You can sit and talk with them about things that Brian and Brad can't talk with to other females. I can be sympathetic and I can be empathetic, but I'm not sure I truly understand So I have to kind of do that. But when I teach, I always have a female instructor who's the model. If you can imagine putting your students, your female students, whom you you may have never met, they're coming in for the only class, a two-hour class on a Saturday, and you try to get everybody's names and you do the paperwork and they come in. And now I'm going to put them in sexual positions to teach them how to fight their way out of them. 
that's really, it's not impossible to do. And there are some tricks to be able to do that, but you've got to realize you're putting them at their worst nightmare. Right. Oh my God, I'm pinned to the floor and this guy is in between my thighs and rape is imminent. And knowing that that is very tricky, we will model with our female student or our female instructor. Okay. And so they go, oh, okay, I see that she's being put in this position. There's nothing sexual about it. And I see how to get out of it now. So usually all of our fear comes from the unknown, right? Mm -hmm. As humans, our fear comes from the unknown. And now when you teach someone, oh, well, it's simple. Here's how we get out. It's simple. And you find out it actually is simple if you're using the concepts that we kind of try to keep in our head. I try to want to keep my thoughts for my techniques, just a very minimal amount of kind of, of choices. You know, I've got an either or kind of choice. And so now the students see beforehand, oh, okay, I see what's happening and I see how to, how the position is solved. Now, when I put them in that position in a very, I can kind of do it in a kind of ways where it's not threatening. They can focus on the solution versus the feelings of being overpowered. So the FEMA, Tracy is awesome at that. I've got Heather Wall, who is phenomenal, and Shannon Mahoney, who is very, very dedicated to the female students. And it's a, an amazing, amazing thing to see the female instructors really, really taking a class further and farther than maybe us as males ever could do. I love that. That's a great way to do it. Now, I will I will tell you a trick on that too. Yeah. At the kind of the, the risk of kind of letting the punchline out, I start the class as a very major, I'll take a student from the class, the class of women come in, they're not martial artists. We don't wear geese. We don't wear any uniforms. We dress, just dress in athletic kind of wear. We don't ray in, we don't bow in, we don't do any kind of thing. I lay down on the mat and kind of prop my head up on my arm and they come in and we talk and then I sit up, but I'm not over them. I'm not standing up while they're sitting down. It's right. very informal. And we kind of do that. And my very first take on it is, okay, here we go. And I grab one of the students, you know, Marcy, get up here. I go, okay, put up your Dukes. And I take a real aggressive fighting stance. I go, and I'm like, oh, I'm mad dogging her. I'm really staring her down. And I look at the rest of the students. I go, who's going to win? And they're like, you are. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> I'm bigger than her, way bigger than her. You know, I'm trained more than her. And then I go, okay, you know, go ahead. And Marcy, go ahead and sit down. Oh, so she got brought up to demonstrate something. And she's thinking, I don't know what to do. This is putting, and then she got to sit down. Oh, I'm safe with Brad. He didn't make me do anything weird. And we kind of laugh about it. And we kind of, and then what happens is we take some serious subjects and there's always a crack that I can make in terms of being self-deprecating. Mm -hmm. And it usually starts to get the women involved and they start cracking jokes. And there's a certain point of the class where I don't, I transcend from saying me versus you to then he's doing this to us. And I'm afraid that this is going to happen. And let me show you what I do. And so I take on this kind of persona that it's not a physical persona. It's a kind of a psychological persona of like, I'm one of you now. We're all worried about this. I don't want him to do this. And what if he's choking me? 
And I put myself in the position and have a, have a guy choking me. You know, this scares me. And they lay, they're leaning forward. I know. So by the time you get through a good portion of the class, the jokes are coming out. People are laughing. They have no problem with getting in and trying things because we're very supportive. And we get them. We know people are different levels. Uh, the interesting thing is when women start getting really, really good at the techniques mm -hmm. and they get the confidence because they've learned the competence that it starts getting kind of dangerous. I've been KO'd once and almost KO'd another time and just kind of got a fat lip out of that one, but it's effective. Yeah. So people walk out of there and they feel, I think that's how we got the thing from it is the women like, I've never felt so empowered did you see me? Did you see what I did to Brad? Did you see how I launched him across the room? And they get excited about it versus what I've had other women early on say, yeah, yeah, I've taken a self-defense class. I kind of don't really remember how to do it. It was kind of a thing like this with your arm, but I don't remember it. And Or another woman will say, yeah, I walked out and I was so excited. And the more I thought about it is I'm not sure I could really use that. So it's a whole different kind of train of thought for women who are not trained in martial arts. And I will give you this, and I have to give credit to the Gracies on this too, is the people that need the self-defense the most are the ones least likely, A, to seek it out, mm -hmm. and B, to be able to perform it. Right. You know, if, you have, if you've got an Olympic discus thrower and she comes in, oh man, I've had volleyball players, I've had uh, women who do crew, and they kick the crap out of us. <laughs> women that know how to use their bodies. So now how do I get that hundred pound uh, little girl getting to the point where she's got the confidence to be able to, to be able to actually resist. And that brings up a point that I do want to stick in here, Brian, mm -hmm. your daughters, our daughters that we've trained to be nice and sweet and respect their elders. They're the ones that most at risk because guess what? They respect their elders and they can be walked off because they don't know how to tell somebody to get the hell away from me. Right. You're not my dad. Get away from me. You know, that kind of thing. You have to teach them. The nicest, sweetest kids are the ones that are most malleable. I'd love to check out. If I'm ever out in the area, I'd love to come and uh, sit in and watch one of your classes or maybe even help. <laughs> I mean, I, I haven't taught, uh, helped taught a women's self-defense class in a while. Last time I did, I actually got a, a bloody nose. So, <laughs> cause, oh, okay. Because she did, because yeah. the woman I was holding targets for did very well. And I was very proud <laughs> of her. <laughs> so. Well, the, the, the KO for me was I had a helmet on Ooh. and this kicking from the ground upward, her heel caught me under the chin. And it, you know, you see, all I saw was kind of a, a brief <laughs> glimpse of the fluorescent lights on mm. the ceiling. And then, you know, you're ne then next thing you know, you're looking up at a circle of people looking down at you like, are you okay? <laughs> yep. I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> I know my instructor, one of the things he used to really focus on was the foot stomp because he said, you know, the, the male foot, he said it's, it's one of the easiest things to break. And so he used to teach that he'd have the foot padding on and he actually had a, a girl fracture or break his foot through the padding because she ooh. stomped it so hard. And, and he had, he's like, I didn't tell her. He's like, I held it in until afterwards because I didn't <laughs> exactly. want her to, I didn't want her to feel bad. And it was like, he's just like, great job. And then afterwards he's like, I need to go to the doctor. <laughs> I think I broke my foot. <laughs> like, you know, and that's a like, great wow. point to bring up as yep. a instructor. When you are, I got this way early. I mm -hmm. had to go for a, uh, I had to go to a, to recertify for a baton. So I'm down at a, uh, we got to go in for training and I see these, we're, we're doing baton techniques against 
a guy in a, in a red man suit mm-hmm. and he's a horrible role player. Cause he's just like the Terminator, you yeah. know, like the, he, he just, he won't stop no matter what you do. And I think at one point, you know, I smacked him how many times and finally just front kicked him to get him to go back. Mm-hmm. Well, I go, okay, horrible role player. And I, cause I experienced like, dude, I'm, I would be putting you down with these, but you just keep coming. <sighs> so then when I'm in the locker room changing, I saw two other guys come in and they were exhilarated. God, that was great. Did you see how good I did? And like, yeah, man, that was awesome. Yeah, I really, and they worked up a sweat and I'm looking at these guys and I'm listening to them and I'm thinking to myself, they were two of the worst officers in the class. Their technique was horrible. They could hardly follow instructions, but what they had done was they equated activity with efficiency. Right. So because they were flailing and swinging their batons all over the place, wow, that was awesome. (laughs) And I realized two sides of that coin. One, you got to be a good role player because if they're ineffective, you need to keep pressing or coaching to make them effective. And then if it's effective, you need to stop. Like, yeah, that got me. So you've, you as a kicker, you know that there's some people that can kick really well and you get one, you're like, ah, that felt like a push. Try again. And you know what I'm saying? When people try to point their toes, they Mm -hmm. tend to push versus stomp, pull their toes up and stomp with their bottom of your foot. And then you'll get one like, oh, yeah, that was it. (laughs) Yep. And you stop. And then they go, okay, that's what it felt like. Mm -hmm. So I learned those two sides, how to be a good role player and be a good instructor and also be a good student. So there's a lot of things involved here. But I think you should come. Nice. I think if you come to one of the classes, we should we could meet with at Tracy's place, and we'll have a blast. I'd love to. I, I it's I haven't been out that way in a while, so I'd love to get out there and visit again. So it'd be fun. So talk a little bit about the book, kind of what what led to that. Okay, same kind of thing that I was talking about earlier, where you take as an instructor, you give someone a course, mm-hmm. and they say that's awesome. Can you give me the notes on the course? And I will, I will suggest as a provider, if you're an instructor and you're providing a group, let's say the, uh, the base that I I taught at in San Diego, they're used to getting manuals. And as an instructor, you want to be able to have them be able to review the information. But Brad, what if they steal all my stuff? What if they steal all my intellectual property? You know, I'm not worried about it. Steal all you want. I want every martial artist listening to your podcast to start teaching women's self-defense and beg, borrow, and steal the best stuff from anybody you can. So I get this thing of, hey, Brad, we need to start recertifying for these instructors. Okay, great. Let's talk about it. Well, we kind of, we've changed a few things and some people are asking about this. I'm like, okay, well, you've got your manuals. And like, well, the manuals don't really explain everything. It doesn't have photos in it. It's not a one, two, three kind of thing. Well, then the more we talked about it, I said, you know, you guys, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, can you guys teach all this? Well, I can teach the uh, the first two modules, but I'm kind of I'm kind of a little bit rusty on defending against weapons. Oh, okay. And they're like, yeah, can you show that to us again? Yeah, I can show it. Or Maybe I need to memorialize all this. So that's what came out, Brian, was an effort to memorialize to instructors. Here's how you do it. Here's how you do your... I've taken out some instructor notes Mm -hmm. 
because there are some things. So for example, I grab you from behind and I try to put you in a rear chokehold. But what I do is as an instructor, I reach under your elbow and I help support you in case you fall or do something. You know what I'm saying? There's instructor tips that you're doing to protect the student and to protect yourself. I don't put those in this, in these, because they're uh, these modules that are coming out. This first one is the first module and we got five of them. And the first one came out just so people know, they wanted to know the why in addition to the how. Okay. How did this happen? Why did this happen? Why are we doing it this way? So there's some some stuff in the front that kind of gives more detail on my journey and to try to find what really worked and what, what didn't and how the women showed me the way. So this curriculum really is by women for women. Women showed us the way. Okay. This is not elite law enforcement. This is not special commando stuff. This is women showing us, well, I can't do this, but I can do that. And it's also some strange situations that us as men, we don't worry about. When do us as men worry about being forced to our knees and forced into oral copulation? Right. Right. And then we get into the easy escape for that. It's almost... It's almost humbling when you know what the easiest escape is, Mm -hmm. but it's traumatic because you're put in this situation. And quite frankly, it's not good. The longer it goes, it's not going to get better. Right. So we used to say, if you can drag it out longer, uh, and there are some certain aspects because the assailant, he doesn't want to get caught and he doesn't want to get hurt. So we want to attract attention. Well, now I'll have to say watching what's happening in a lot of our cities there's a lot of assailants that are not worried about getting caught anymore. Right. So that is a whole separate thing. But the the book is a way to memorialize the modules. And also it's a way to realize that after COVID, we can't really travel to people and they can't really travel to us. So what we run into is it's like, hey, do you guys have a class in Tampa? Oh, no, we don't. Can you come out to Chicago? No, we don't. And then now I'm expecting you, Brian, to spend $600 on flight, hotel, you know, and you're going to spend three or four days, long weekend to do two modules. And then you're going to come out for two more. It's really difficult. And so you start saying, you know what? We're doing things online now. So the books are the uh, start of the online courses that allow you to actually see the video of how to do it. And it's, like I said, by women for women. So that's, that's how the book originated. Nice. That's cool. And I will definitely put a link for that out there too. So. Oh, I appreciate it. And there's, there's more on the way because this one is literally, uh, we call it stay with people. That's the only decision I have to make, you know, at this kind of juncture. Oh my God, what do I do? Well, I'll make it easy. You can either stay with people or you go to people. And if you're attacked in a public place, Don't let him take you somewhere else. You need to stay with people. If you're attacked in a private place, you need to go to a public place. Mm -hmm. That concept in in the second module is go to people. So what's interesting is the first one is essentially a stranger attack. And the second module is more what's really more common, which is, you know, acquaintance or attacks that have been decided because, for example, I had a case of a woman who had a small business in a strip mall and um, and one of those suburban kind of strip malls. So, Mm -hmm. and her office was in the back. She got cornered in the back and was raped in her office, essentially in the back of her business. She needed to just get out to the sidewalk. 
at our front door. And so that's the go to people concept. So they're, they're concept based. And then the, the modules are basically the first one is stay with people. The second one is go to people. The third one is, yeah, but Brad, what if he's holding a knife to my throat? Now, what do I do? Okay. Now we got defense against common weapons and the way they're used to force you by fear into complying with the rapist. And then the fourth one, as it turns out, the techniques and the concepts that we use to defend against the weapon. But Brad, now I've now I've ended up with this. What do I do with it now? That was a strange kind of a big reveal for us is like, yeah, now, now the tables have been turned. But if women have never trained with impact weapons or edged weapons, what are they going to do? And then the fifth one, then people start saying, well, and you're, you're going to find this interesting. There are several real life cases, um, noted them on the blog too, is the bad guy puts his gun down to either undress you or undress himself. And there's a window of opportunity for women to grab the gun. And then they say, yeah, but I don't know how to use it. So in that fourth module, we put airsoft guns in women's hands and we let them practice pulling the trigger on somebody. Okay. And then, then they all look at us, they look at me and go, <laughs> okay, when are you going to teach us how to shoot for real? That's <laughs> the fifth module, firearms for females. Nice. So there's a progression and it's all come organically because of the need for the students in the previous module. That's very, and I'll we'll be watching for those books. All right. I have a, a few fun questions to kind of, to wrap things up here. First of all, I know you, you talked quite a bit about the Gracie. So just curious, are you, are you a fan of MMA and the UFC? I have to tell you what's so interesting about the introduction to that, which is starting to train with the Gracies, seeing how amazing their approach to controlling distance was, and then talking about, Hey, uh, Hoist is going to fight in this uh, this new um, tournament. And they have those tournaments in Brazil. So we were familiar with, we were watching videotapes of uh, fights in mm -hmm. Brazil that were tournaments like this. And so now they picked Hoist, who was the younger brother. And who were kind of looking at Horian like, why don't you pick Hickson? Mm. Like, oh, you know, and he kind of waves his hands off. Like, oh, Hickson, everybody knows Hickson's tough. But what if my brother comes in, you know? They don't know who he is. He's young. He's thin. He's 178 pounds. And Brian, it's the weirdest thing because the first UFC happens and we're glued to our televisions yep. watching this. And Horian said, he kind of shrugs. He goes, yeah, who knows if Hoist will win? It's a, like a tight walking a tightrope with no net, <laughs> no safety net for you when you step in the ring. It's all you and that's it. So we've realized like, oh, this is going to be a cakewalk. And then we look at each other. I don't know. These other guys are tough. So it was fascinating to have that heart in the throat. You want to believe, but you also know that Tank Abbott could just destroy someone, <laughs> yeah. you know, and you're watching this. And yeah, it's like a circus sideshow, but it was fascinating for all of us that had come up in the traditional martial arts. Like you start realizing if somebody can control the distance you're a lot of techniques that we thought were automatic didn't work as well as we thought they did. So it was a very, as a saying, a fan of it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Because we were involved in that side of it. And even in, uh, even in Torrance, people would come in and do challenge uh, matches. If you've seen any of the videos oh, yeah. and it's very, very interesting how 
that method allows practitioners to almost toy with opponents. And they had a very interesting uh, method that they would, a guy would come in and he would challenge a crazy member or even a student. And they never used their highest students. Right. They usually kind of looked at somebody and like, eh, okay, you, you can go with this blue belt. And the blue belt would stuff them or, okay, you know, or you can go with this purple belt or something. And it was interesting because what they would do is they would tie the guy up and he would quit. Usually he's exhausted. Then he, when he stands up, he's like, okay, you know what? I want to go again. I just, I wasn't ready. And they go, okay. So he goes again, they take him down, they tie him up. And then they kind of demonstrate, I could be elbowing you right now, or I could be punching you right now. And the guy goes, let me, okay. And then by the third time, they're like, okay, he he doesn't learn. <laughs> and so then they start slapping, slapping you. And they, they let it go on to the point where it's kind of humiliating. you know. And they said, well, if you let them up too easy, they think, oh, you were just lucky. So it was a very interesting old world introduction into kind of the human mindset of people who are aggressive. And you have to be, you have to match that aggression at certain level. So I thought it was fascinating. So now do I watch uh, all of them religiously? No, I, it's just, it's gotten to the point where it's, it's great entertainment, mm -hmm. but you know who people are training. They're professional fighters and it's great. Tough way to make a living, but yeah. it's great entertainment. I think it's set the martial art world on fire. Okay. All right. And all your years of martial arts, is there one philosophy that just, that you've learned that just rises to the top? It's at the top of your list. You keep coming back to it. Hmm. Okay. All right. Here's one. And you remember these days you get in, you see the belts up on the wall of the dojo and you look and you go, okay, I want to get that next belt. What do I need to do to get the next belt? Do you have something written down? What can I study? What can I do? What can I and then I realized later on in my process, in fact, that's the word process, mm -hmm. trust the process. So you become the belt. You don't test for the belt. Nice. Does that makes sense. Perfect sense. Yeah. So okay. when we're, when we're young, yeah, yeah. I want to get to the next level. I want to get to the next level. I want to get to the next level. And back those days and tell me if you've had the same thing, there was two things, one called the Brown belt blues, where a lot of students would drop out at Brown belt. Mm-hmm. And the second level was they'd get their first degree black belt and they start dropping off. Mm -hmm. You've seen that. Have you experienced that too? I've gone through both of them personally. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. So tell, tell me about your brown belt blues. So well, for me, it was more red belt and it wasn't really, so it was kind of different for me. So I was at my first time, 1996, I, t I was in Taekwondo. It's it, red is right before black. So tested for my black belt, did not pass. I had already moved to California at the time. I had moved to California in 1996 to study American Kempo. And I came back to test and I didn't pass. I moved back to California. I, I missed like three techniques in one break. And I planned on when I came back the next summer to get married, I was going to do my retest. Of course, ended up moving back to Minnesota, came back, got married, got a different job, started life kind of got in the way. I just never had time <laughs> to go back. Fast forward 10 years to 2006, I finally was able to go back through and, and redo my test, complete everything and get my black belt. That was my first degree. And now this many years later, still a first degree because same thing, kids got older, more stuff I had to yeah. be involved in, different jobs, different careers. And it's, you know, so same thing. I mean, I've never 
fully dropped out, but it's you know, I've also dealt with a lot of injuries <laughs> too since then too. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, I, I've definitely experienced both of those. Yeah, and I and I I applaud you because that's probably the second corollary to trust the process, mm-hmm. which is don't quit, exactly. never quit, yep. even if you've dialed it back. And then I've known guys, and I've done this too, where you put on your old gi, and you're like, ah, oh, <laughs> it feels like a comfortable pair of slippers, you know? Or, you're like, oh, it fits. <laughs> 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 so yeah, I would say trust the process because you want to become the belt. You don't want to have to earn it. You become it. I like it. Who are three, four, five names? Doesn't have to be four. I've had as few as two, as many as eight. Just three, four, five names you would put on your personal Mount Rushmore of martial arts. Oh my God. See, some of that is, that's a great question because some of that is personal, Mm -hmm. but some of it is like public. Yep. There are people who did so much for martial arts and there's a million of them. I mean, Mm -hmm. when you look at the Chuck Norris, when you look at uh, Bruce Lee and Danny Nasoto and all of these people that are like really kind of caught everybody's attention. Yep. But then I, I talk with a, you know, Robert Trias who brought this art back. I look at all of the committed instructors that came over from Hawaii, Korea, Japan, and they worked hard to spread their art and they probably labored a labor of love because they probably got hardly any publicity of that. Mm-hmm. And then you've got personal people that I think you look at the, some of the big names. Uh, I look at the impact on the whole arts. And that's what I said. I know uh, Chuck Norris was a, a Tang Soo Do yep. stylist, correct? Yes. And then I've trained with privately with guys that are old school Taekwondo guys, not McDojo Taekwondo guys. Mm-hmm. And they, I watched a guy in a parking lot, fight five guys. And I think he head kicked three, three of them Wow! and put him down. And you're like, Oh my God, Taekwondo is the best. Mm -hmm. Well, this guy was an excellent practitioner. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, so those kind of guys, but yeah, I Chuck Norris, Bruce Lee, Danny Nisoto, uh, Robert Trias, uh, the Gracies, uh, like all of them. I look at Horian. I look at Hickson. I look at Hoyce. I look at Helson and they, without knowing it, they were really changing uh, the art in in the regards. Oh my God, there's oh, so many great guys. I mm-hmm. look back, I'm trying to like picture all my old black belt magazines, mm-hmm. you know, and those cover shots of all those great grandmasters. And here's one thing: How old are your kids, Brian? So I have a 24 year old, 19 year old, and a 17 year old. Okay. So yeah, I'm kind of close to that too. So what's interesting is my oldest son, he knows like an entirely different martial artist than my youngest daughter. Mm -hmm. And even my, even son number two, he was not really around as much as son number one uh, for various reasons, but he knows a different person. So what's interesting is you and I see these people the grandmasters and they're older mm-hmm. and you're like, yeah, what the hell? Oh no, you didn't know that guy when he was 20. Yeah. So I kind of look at that from my standpoint of like, yeah, my, my younger kids, they didn't have exposure to what we were doing, you know, 20 years ago. Right. So it's kind of, it's kind of interesting to look at that. And so when you look at people putting, 
I'd love to see you do a survey and and have your uh you know their your people on your mar- your martial arts Mount Rushmore. That's a fascinating question. Yeah, I just added that one in the last year, probably like eight eight to twelve months. I just added that question. I used to ask for just one name, and it got to be everyone was given three, four, five, six names. So I'm like, oh, let's do Mount Rushmore. That makes more sense. So it's definitely opened it opened it up well, a lot more. Yeah, and and as you get older and you get more connected inside the martial arts world. And then you start looking at uh, a Kali instructor that we've got now, Apollo Ladra. He is phenomenal. He's not that well known, Mm -hmm. but he's phenomenal. And you're like, how do they build these kind of people? Yeah. And I've, I've had guests list only people they've ever personally trained with. You know, they're only like their own instructors. And mm. I've had people only list big names like a Chuck Norris, Ed Parker, Bruce Lee. So it, it's like I said, that's why it's, I always say it's your oh personal God, Mount Ed, Rushmore. Ed Parker. Oh yeah. my God. Huge. Yeah. And I've, huge, I've, 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 huge influence. To, I've interviewed a lot of people that train. I've interviewed Ed Parker Jr. on my show. Oh, and, and, he, and the, inf- some of his the influence guys. he had during that whole golden years, 60s and 70s. Yep. He was the man. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. All those guys. All right. Good. That's a great answer. So now this one, you can't pick your own favorite martial arts book. Oh, wow. Oh, you're killing me, Brian. You're <laughs> killing me. Man, there's uh, Bruce Siddell has one called Sharpening the Warrior's Edge. Okay. Um, I know that uh, uh, the the Tao Te Ching and then what was the name of Bruce Lee's book that came out? Oh, Jeet Kune Do. Jeet Kune Do. Yep. Yeah. I mean, fabulous. I, I wore that book out. I, mm-hmm. the, the spine finally broke. Henzo Gracie has one called Mastering Jiu-Jitsu. Nice. Uh, which is, is half philosophical, half... Here's how, here's exactly how you do this technique. Okay. It's fascinating. But the problem with books is it's hard to, and you've done this mm-hmm. as a kid, you're like, get Black Belt magazine and you open it up and you go, okay, I do this, then I do this. And then the fourth step, how does he get there from here? Yeah, exactly. You know, you look at it like it's kind of that old uh, New Yorker cartoon joke, like, then a miracle happens, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> a guy's coming with an overhead knife stab. I, you know, I step to one side and then the next photo shows you in. I'm like, how did he get there? <laughs> so I, books are, but that's what we had. Yeah. We love those books. See, most of my favorites are more uh, biographies or autobiographies. I mean, I've read some really great ones of those. Yeah. Very interesting. And on this one, you may not have an answer for. How about a favorite martial arts video game? Are we ever into games? Yeah. Sadly, no. Okay. So uh, I, I maybe I shouldn't say sadly, but I know that it's uh, it's got some skill building capabilities. Mm-hmm. But I, as an instructor, I missed huge swaths of American pop culture. Okay. Seinfeld never watched it. Wow. Friends <laughs> never watched it, wow. and it's kind of realizing like, oh, those must be the nights that I taught. And of course, yep. when you got a you have a professional gym or a business, you know, it's Oh, you're there every night. Yeah. You're there vacuuming, then you're teaching, then you're, you know, cleaning up and then you get home and like, yeah, I don't, yeah, there's huge swaths of pop culture. I don't know anything about. Okay. Well then we'll see if these next two questions we'll, we'll see. Now, how about a favorite martial arts TV show? Oh man. You, you almost have to go with, uh, David Carradine and Kung Kung Fu. Fu. Okay. That's a popular answer. I'd say that's probably easily 30% of people pick that one. You know, and then there's things. Similar concept, mm-hmm. <laughs> but different movie. 
I'm walking by the bargain bin of like VHS tapes or maybe it was a DVD. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, Highlander, best movie ever. And then you watch it and you're like, this is such a clunker. (laughs) What did I see? you know, 15 years ago that was so awesome. I've got a French guy who, French actor is trying to play a Scottish guy. And then I've got a Scottish guy trying to play a Spanish character. See, I always like, like this the is series. Weirdest- <laughs> I like the series more than the movie. I, I, was oh, I, I missed the, the whole, I, I missed the whole series. Oh, uh, again, wow. another pop culture TV thing that I missed the whole thing. Okay. So uh, Kung Fu is a, is a major one, huh? Okay. Yeah, yeah that, that one's picked up. I'd say that one, and then a lot of a lot of younger people are picking Cobra Kai, obviously, <laughs> for the new one. So I I actually like the new one better yeah. than the old one. Yeah, yeah. I do like Cobra Kai a lot. So all right, how about uh, favorite martial arts movie? <sighs> so this is kind of a ringer, mm-hmm. but um, it either had to be. Oh man, I can't believe I'm I'm blowing it. But the Bruce Lee movie, Enter the Dragon. Uh, Enter the dragon. Yep. There you go. Okay. So this is a this is a funny thing. So I'm a kid and I'm working as as an usher at a movie theater. And playing at the theater was Enter the Dragon. And I had that movie timed to the point where I could walk in on all the all the good scenes. Nice. And it was just yeah, it was just a time of your life that was just so instrumental and you know, it has a big input on you. And uh it was it was fascinating at that time. It being a real young kid, you mm-hmm. know, it, it had a lot. Yeah, see, I was I was born the year after it came out, so I I missed it in theaters. First time I saw it on the big screen was two weeks ago for the 50th anniversary showing in my hometown. So I, I finally got to. I had seen it on video. I don't know, probably you know, 50 times. But I I heard the local theater was playing it, and I. And, and, my, what was, and, and my 19 year old son, can I go with? I'm like, yes. <laughs> and and what you what you think seeing it on the big screen? I love it. It was so good, so much better on the big screen. So much better. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. I it was a it was a it's a real turn point in the popular culture as yeah. well because I think before then it was like super old days that I never saw. He was Cato and the Green Hornet. Yep. Yep. And then I think there was a thing where Bruce Lee was on Long Street. Yep. As a, as a kind of a, a thing there. And then other than that, I mean, supposedly martial arts were James Kirk doing a little bit of judo and Billy Jack. That was a big, uh, one. Billy Jack. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, I want to say, um, unless you lived in a city that was showing like, you know, the Kung Fu theater stuff, you didn't really see it in the U S so. Yeah, I, I agree on that. Yeah, yeah. You did. Then the old, yeah. The old fists of fury, yep. you know, yeah. The chop sake things that, yeah, and you know, being over in LA, I was exposed to a lot of that. Now that I think about it, yeah. but we watched—I mostly watched surfing films and oh, surfing or skiing films in LA. Nice. All right, final question. Now, this one doesn't have to be a martial arts uh, movie; just a favorite movie fight scene. <sighs> You're killing me, Brian. And, and You're I've killing had, me. and just so I've had guests go from anywhere from martial arts to Star Wars to Marvel and The Princess Bride. So anything goes. Oh my God. Okay. You're right. Princess Bride. (laughs) So I have son number one and he's probably, I don't know, five. And we have Nerf swords and we got Princess Bride on and we're sword fighting, jumping on the couch, doing all this stuff. And so we're watching it. And the point when they discover they've been fighting with their support hands versus their dominant hands. Mm -hmm. And so my son says, aha, I have to tell you, but I am amphibious. 
And I think he was trying to say ambidextrous. <laughs> and so that's my best story with him. But yeah, awesome. Princess Bride with the sword fighting scene. Unbelievable. Awesome. I love it. First of all, I just want to say thank you. This has been such a blast. I've, I've loved learning more about you. And, get, and I definitely want to meet you in person someday and hang out. But anything that you can think of that I maybe missed or forgot to ask you? You know, I think it's better when it comes out organically. Okay. Because I think you are a great interviewer. Thank you. And you got a lot out of this because I don't like talking about myself. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think I'm particularly entertaining, but I do like hearing from people and talking with people. So having this conversation has been fantastic, Brian. You're a great interviewer and I really enjoyed it. Well, I love it. I, I can't wait till the episode comes out. All right. Well, good luck trying to edit out all the ums and ah, that's, uhs. That's what I live for. I, I'm looking forward to it, but I, I truly appreciate your time and it's been a blast. Thanks, Brian. Totally great. I'm going to uh, especially thank Tracy for putting us in touch with each Definitely. other. And I also wanted to ask you at some point about you being on our podcast with me and Tracy. Would you be willing to do that? Yeah, we definitely, yeah, we got to work that out. Totally appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist. We hope you will join us every week for a brand new episode with a different martial artist telling their story. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave us a review. Also, be sure to check out our website at everydaymartialartist.com. There you can find all of our episodes and contact us to suggest guests and ask questions. Again, thanks for listening to Everyday Martial Artist, and we'll see you next week.